well, after we've gone to all that rigmarole to actually set up, I'm going to go make myself a coffee because we're recording in the morning again. Hooray! the finest instant oh yeah it is the finest instant i got the uh smooth blend 43 nescafe so you know top shelf it's very fancy i'm due to buy some more coffee so i'll have to see what i get all right feedback it's kind of meta level feedback i hear we're in the top 50 percent of podcasts chris top 50 percent. we're very popular and successful brian apparently in their first week the 50th percentile on buzzsprout is 27 downloads and we get consistently around the 40 45 mark so that is pretty exciting hey that's awesome good job listeners love it i'm pleased that a few of them enjoying these conversations as much as i do eh, probably not as much as i do i really enjoy these conversations i'm pretty sure the biggest fan of this podcast is chris yeah i listen to it twice every week i'm doing it to write the show notes but i'm also genuinely enjoying it whoever that squeaky guy voice is that talks to brian he just has so many good ideas <laughs> It sounds so attractive and handsome. Uh, yeah, no, I never agree with that deep voice, dude. <laughs> right, not really much feedback from last week. No, no one thought that we were insightful or at all helpful. So we'll go back to being affixes. Oh, well, that's fine. Never be original. I did mention in that show, particularly when we were talking about inflation, I was curious about the relative size of the Australian versus American stimuluses. I found out that the first COVID stimulus package in America is obviously called the CARES Act, the $1.9 trillion one being passed around about now, apparently is nicknamed Stimmy. So I enjoyed that as a bit of a note. And then I did calculations based on how big JobKeeper versus Stimmy was. And Stimmy just sounds like such an Australian thing to call it. It kind of does, doesn't it? But I definitely found it on a... On yeah, no, like I've seen people in America on Discord reference it as a Stimmy as well. Got to get me hands on me Stimmy. It does sound very Australian. Yeah, shortening of words and ending them in Y. Very Australian thing to do. The JobKeeper package that we passed was 4.29% of GDP. And the further COVID stimulus, some for the arts and I forget what else we... St- stimulated a variety of other things was another 2.8%. So Australia spent about 7% of GDP on coronavirus stimulus. The CARES Act alone was 10.2% of American GDP and STEMI, which I actually thought STEMI was bigger, so I'm a bit confused by that, but STEMI seems to be a further 4%. So the Americans are running at about double what we did in terms of percent GDP. So they have really stimulated their economy quite largely. America seems more primed for inflation than Australia does based on the printing of money that is happening over there. But, you know, inflation expectations may be forever low. Or maybe the 2070s, this will all catch up to us and we can have another stagflation. Yeah, and I'm seeing lots of different angles on it and seeing it in lots of places, like reflecting on the RBA thing that was in last week's show notes on the history of monetary policy and saying, you know, things kind of look like the 1960s when inflation was kind of artificially low and then had big catch-up inflation in the 1970s because reserve banks didn't really target inflation at all at that stage. They kind of were just in the background. No one knows what they did. They were just a cushy job for an elite. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. And I'm seeing a few comments around that and hearing it in some big macro discussions. I guess a couple of thoughts I had on it this week was like, okay, so the STEMI and the CARES Act, they're big one-off events. Inflation kind of needs to be more than just a one-off event. You need to keep following it up with more and more growth. Well, it spirals, right? It spirals based on expectations. If the price of everything gets more expensive, then people are going to demand that their labor price rises and then the inputs to production are more expensive. So costs rise. So people demand higher salaries, right? This is the inflationary spiral. So a big event could be what kicks off those expectations and then it just becomes a part of the economy. No, I could believe that. I don't know. I'm just... I'm quite skeptical of one thing triggers hyperinflation. Uh, I'm not talking about hyperinflation, but I do feel like it could reset expectations for 
a decade. Plausibly. Yeah, I could see it getting away from the zero bound that we seem to be locked to on inflation. Inflation's really low. We didn't inflate milk recently. Milk was a dollar a litre for as long as I can remember. And we've finally broken out of that. So maybe that's a sign. That's the other thing that I've been thinking about inflation is just like, there are so many intermediate steps that it seems like the argument you just gave there. Oh yeah, prices will go up. So therefore workers will demand more pay. So therefore prices will go up more, blah, 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 blah. Real wages will decrease and that'll increase the amount of people employed, so on and so forth. Yep. Eh, like I feel like there's a lot of frictions in the system that you still need more than a one-off event to push through. Like, here's a tip for anyone who hasn't worked with retailers out there. Retailers hate rising prices. Yeah, they really, really hate it. it. They push it back on it so hard. Same thing with reflecting on back when we had a carbon tax for about six months. When you're setting a corporate plan based on that, you just ask to cut costs elsewhere. You don't just expect it to pass it on in a price increase. Yeah, and it takes right. a lot of push to actually get that through if you want to have any kind of marginal price increase. Yeah, I agree. But again, I think this is exactly where a shift in expectations can change that mentality. Once the expectation is that prices rise by 5% every year, because that's what they've done for a couple of years now, we kicked it off with cares and then some other melees hit the economy. So we did the next big stimulus in 2022. Then it's like, well, I guess this is just a thing now. Prices rise at 5% every year. And when that boss goes to their boss and says, hey, I need to raise prices because all my input costs are thing, it's no longer the screaming, you can't ever do that will be bankrupt and it'll be the biggest disaster. It'll be like, well, I guess it didn't go that badly the last two times. Maybe we'll just keep doing it. Yeah, that I can get behind. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get at is like, it's not just going to be the 2020 CARES Act and the 2021 STEMI that does it. It's going to have to be something in 2022 that reinforces it again to get that kind of pattern that people to start matching and permanently shifting their expectations rather than just people like you and me who look at it. Yeah, I haven't actually seen the expectations shift at all, right? I haven't seen a lot of price rises going through on the consumer goods that I look at. It looks like maybe no one's taken that first step, but perhaps they will start to as more and more money sloshes around. I'm surprised that hasn't happened in bikes. You can't buy a bike for love nor money in 2020. Everyone's decided that they want to buy bikes and you just can't get them. You pre-order them and if I pre-order a Canyon, I get it in like late 2022 right now. So. You would think that the obvious reaction to that for the manufacturer would be to raise prices. That is what happens when demand is white hot, is you should raise prices, but they still don't do it. No, I feel like expectations after the 1980s or whatever, like not even expectations, like actual structural systems on how we negotiate, etc. They all changed to accommodate, no, we're going to have price stability, deal with it. We're looking out for our consumer, so therefore we don't pass on price increases. Yeah. I will also say, as someone who has seen a bit of retail level data, there was subtle price increases last year in terms of like... Like okay. fewer promotions. So the actual average price level increased, but the absolute or the RRPs, whatever, they didn't have big increases. Yeah, it's an interesting thing in the fast moving consumer goods industry, particularly that the price that is the RRP is often quite divorced from the price people actually pay because those little yellow tickets in the supermarket saying this is on special is where a lot of goods get sold. So yet those stealth price increases, which is like, well, we used to do a 30% off every two weeks and now we only do a 20% off every two weeks is a price rise. It's like absolutely and really a price rise but the RRP never changes, so it is harder to notice. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. That was a couple of thoughts I had on inflation while we were talking about stimuluses. Yeah, so anyway, I feel I still feel good about winning the bet in three years. <laughs> and then the only other feedback I had while listening to it is we mentioned that we really, really want emails from you guys and that Brian said maybe he would email one of our accounts from the other of our accounts, and he did that, and I got really excited because there was a big email saying, hey, first I got the first email, and I'm like, oh, I wonder who it is, I wonder who it is, and then I... I read it and podcast affix emailed affix podcast. So if you would like to email either of those at gmail.com, then you were going to have to write second in the tagline because Brian already <laughs> beat you to it. 
Oh, come on, it's not a classic first comment if you haven't got like three first comments. I mean, yeah, that's true. The classic first comment is the one that's third down <laughs> with three edits saying, damn, I thought I really thought I was first this time. Once I said it, I couldn't stop myself from doing it. It was too amusing. <laughs> I mean, I laughed when I figured it out, but I did. you did, You got me. You like you really genuinely <laughs> got me before I read the from line. Chris has got like hyper notifications set up to that account. Yeah. Breakthrough, do not disturb times, let me know. At 2 a.m. if someone gets me an email, I need to know about it and I will will respond. <laughs> That's not even remotely true. So looking at last week's episode, first off, apologies to everyone. It was a big episode. I cut out a few sections and even so, it was actually our longest episode, I believe. Yeah. And one of the very few that are over an hour, we usually try to target a little bit under. Yeah. So apologies to everyone for that. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as Chris and I did. It turns out we had a lot to say and looking at my notes, there's still a lot more left to say. First thing that occurred to me was we never even mentioned that Chris was on the Aussie Firebug podcast, like episode two or three. That's where I got my podcasting start. Yeah. That was what made me the famous podcaster that I am today. That's where it all began. I know your parents love that episode. Your dad's never brought it up begrudgingly to me. <laughs> Oops. So yeah, Aussie Firebug. Well, gee, when was that? 2016, something like that? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yep. He's, he's been pretty consistent. He's been podcasting a lot of that time. Yeah, I think he did not like COVID and he stopped most of his extra activities during COVID and just be depressed like the rest of the world. But um, Well, he moved to the UK as well, so that would be extra depressing. Yes, yeah, yeah. He was not having fun in the UK during lockdown. You know, when you have no friends in your time zone and all your social activities are after work drinks with your co-workers and then they close the pubs. That's, that's pretty tough. That's rough. So yeah, 2016, we were actually looking at, oh, maybe we could do a fire podcast and then Aussie Firebug came out and we're like, good. Now we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> we could just keep talking crap to each other. It possibly planted the seed, though. Possibly. Yeah, you certainly did seem to have a lot of fun on that conversation. So, I don't know. We can chuck a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, why not? And Aussie Firebug is a good podcaster. I don't listen to him super consistently, but he gets some interesting guests on, bankers and investment analysts and sport betting people. I'm not, like, super into the sport betting people, but that's fine. Yeah, I don't know if that's still a thing. I mean, we've mentioned V. Mashowitz does sports betting, and I think there's some interesting stuff there, but it's very easy to be duped into just getting on those platforms, I would say. It does feel like a, it just feels like a scammy industry to me, yeah. Yeah. So, also... We touched on a couple of critiques of fire. You know, you're just going to keep working. You got to have something to retire to, et cetera, et cetera. I guess one of the critiques we never touched on, which I remember seeing once the whole fire movement got some local press. I remember and another Australian blogger called Pat the Shuffler got an interview on ABC News and I think on Sunrise or something like that. And there were a lot of comments on that coverage being like, he's just a parasite. Like, how dare mm. you stop working while you're still able to work? You should be out there earning taxes so you can pay for my retirement, you little millennial <laughs> so jerk. And so. <laughs> yep. And no. <laughs> I mean, it depends on your opinion of the validity of capital earning income, right? And a lot of people don't like that idea. I guess that's it. I just feel like we've talked about social contract theory a little bit on here. So I can kind of see the argument of we're all in a society together. If you're able to work, you should be contributing while you're able to. You should be contributing yep. how you are able to. But at the same time, people should be allowed to choose to do things. Well, I mean, you know, yes, I lean towards individualism and letting people decide what they want to do with their own money. I'm pretty strong on that opinion. But the other thing is like, he didn't consume all the stuff. Like you've, yeah. you've spent your whole paycheck, then you've made a bunch of people work for you to build you your PlayStation 7 and make you lots of nice meals when you go out to the cafe. Like they've all had to work hard just to give you consumption goods or to take care of your kids or something more noble. I don't know, whatever you're spending your money on, you're spending your money on other people working for you. Pat has decided not to ask people to work for him. And as a result of not as many people 
people having to work for him, he doesn't have to work as much for other people, which I guess does sort of remove him a little bit from society, but it depends how much you value your own leisure. He's given a bunch of leisure back to people because they don't have to work for him. That is a very, very good way of putting it. Like while you were talking about it, I obviously had my accountant's hat on him. Like, well, yeah, if he's not paying for people to do stuff for him, he's therefore not paying goods and service taxes at the same rate and he's not contributing to society in that way. And in a way, potentially, he's like sponging off the societal structure around him. Yeah. I'm yeah. trying to come up with the steel man argument for like why thinking people who retire early or are looking to retire early are parasites. Well, I mean, if you think that a capitalist is a parasite, and a lot of people I think, yeah. do lean towards that idea that just simply owning something shouldn't give you income streams, even though we really want people to make factories to make it making things easier, we then don't want people to reap the benefits of that owning a factory for whatever reason. Uh, it's one of the difficulties in getting your head around capitalism. You know, then all capitalists are a parasite. And so the capitalist who, even at a very low level, only owns only owns a million dollars worth of capital and can draw his $40,000 a year income off that, and that's all he decides he needs, he's still a parasite, right? Yeah. Any income derived from capital is less noble than income derived from labor. I think thinking through it, it's funny how similar the same argument applies to all those like right-wing capitalists who want to put all the restrictions on job seeker and those kind of jobs programs, work for the dole, etc. Where if you are being paid by the government, no, you need to go out and get a job. You need to be trying to get a job. What's wrong yep. with you? This is why we shouldn't have UBI because if people do it, they'll just be sitting there idly by. And it's like, yeah, well, we judge you the same capitalists. You want to sit there idly with your big hoard of money, earning money on itself? Yep. Sometimes that's appealing to me. Sometimes I want to sit idly by. Not right now, though. Yeah. I feel like you're just sitting idly by. You've worked much harder in your career than I have. What have I taken? Yeah. No, I'm not going to talk about my leave history on here. <laughs> Suffice to say, it's not much. <sighs> it is nice living in Australia where we do get a good leave balance, though. It is one of the many benefits of living in the best country in the world, yes. Now that you bring it up, did you see the thing on Marginal Revolution the other day where Tyler's like proposing, here's how sick leave should work after COVID's happened. Oh, yeah, happened. that you should be paid a premium to take your sick leave. You should be paid a premium to take your sick leave three days a year. Three yeah. days a year. What insanity is this, America? Three yeah. days of sick leave a year. Come it's on. as good as we can get. It's my final offer. Take it or leave it. Like... What do we get in Australia? Ten days. Ten days, is it, that it actually accrues? Yeah. I remember my first professional job. It was ten days in a year. Like, it didn't build up. Oh, it didn't accrue. Right. So... In the period of any given 12 months, you could take a maximum of 10 days. Yep. And then some other places have it, so it just continuously builds up. I know the current payroll system that I manage indirectly, uh, that does have it build up. So if you work for 10 years and don't take a single sick day, you have 100 sick days in the bank, basically. Yeah. Anyway, three days, maybe. Oh, I mean, three days gets me through most years. I doubt there's many years where I have more than three sick days, honestly. But as a parent, a little mean. Three yeah, days yeah, would yeah. Not if you're caring for carers leave, yeah, that's that's much harder if you're um, if you're caring for others, definitely. Particularly yeah. kids who tend to be more sickly. Yeah, I think before I had a child, uh, I would have taken maybe on average one sick day a year. Since yeah. then, it's like nah. <laughs> no, more, much more regular. Yeah, right. Okay. That's important. It's important to take care of your kids. I think that, that is a valid use of time off. And yes, like I think the culture in America is to never take leave for any reason ever. It does seem quite culturally ingrained, that Protestant work ethic. So Tyler wanted to pay people additional to use their sick leave on the basis that if you're sick and you come to work, then you infect a bunch of other people. And that's worse for everyone. So you should be actively encouraged to not come to work when you're sick. Yeah. I mean, there's good economic literature on why workplaces pay for people to get their flu shots based on exactly that logic yep. so that way they can 
internalize the externality when it comes to vaccines and the benefits there. Yep, fewer people getting sick, more work days, more stuff getting done. And then next thought on fire, to get back to that topic. So we never really covered off on so many things. I really generally do think there's an episode two in here one day, maybe. One day. We kind of touched on make sure you put it in broad market ETFs and I will recommend the book A Random Walk on Wall Street to people to read that. It's a pretty readable book. It's good. Solid explanation for why you should stick to broad based index funds. Maybe we could have a discussion about index funds at some point in the future. I don't know. Or just investment strategy generally. Yeah, potentially. I'm lazy, so I like index funds. And then final note that I had to myself on that front was we mentioned a 4% safe withdrawal rate. I don't even know if that I'm, I might've mentioned the term 4%. Um, So a safe withdrawal rate is you start with say a million dollars. That's your total block of wealth at the point that you retire. And then you can take 4% of that, so $40,000 every year, adjusting for inflation, but never increasing it and only taking it of that base. So if you start with a million dollars and then in your first year, you actually earn 10% on your investments. So you take out $40,000, get down to 960,000, but then it increases 10% and you end up at, I don't know, a million and 60,000. You don't rebase it to 4%. No, your 4% is set at the date of retirement. Yes, it's set at the date of retirement. You just for inflation, but that should be factored into your calculations anyway. And there's a lot of studies behind that being fairly safe. Yeah, they do look at 30-year retirements. So there is some risk if you're retiring in your 30s that your retirement could be considerably longer than just 30 years. If you you know if you live to 85, then that's a 50-year retirement. Yeah, that was originally based on the US as well. So I think yes. I might be able to dig through my comments on Reddit from many, many years ago to uh, trace back a report from Ibis World on Australia and safe oh, withdrawal really? rates in Australia. It was slightly lower, but again, in the time since Australia's also performed remarkably well and had less volatility in their share market indices. So Lucky country. We might be okay there. Personally, I look at like a, I don't know, 3.3 or 3.5% safe withdrawal rate. Do you really? Yeah, right. But again, I'm conservative, so whatever. Yeah, it's uh, I'm in a weird spot right now and I don't really know what it would be, but I would probably, given my predilection for enjoying some types of work at least, be more willing to target something like five, which can work without any additional income in a good half of cases. And if I have to go back and contract a little bit to supplement that income, that's also pretty fine. Some people are absolutists. It's like if you retire and if you ever work for money for a day in your life ever again, then you have failed retirement and you are a bad fire person. But um, I'm trying to be less absolutist in most of my life than those things. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's the right attitude to take. Being an absolutist just sounds like being a disagreeable person. In episode zero, we talked about being disagreeable and it's not the nicest. No, I do not think I'm... uh, I don't think I'm very disagreeable. I think I'm, I like to go with the flow. I like to set the flow, but I like to go with it once I've set it. <laughs> nice one. Oh, yeah, benefits. So as I've obliquely mentioned or alluded to in uh, this podcast history as well, uh, I'm getting made redundant. So having <laughs> this kind of saving structure certainly made facing into that redundancy a lot easier yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean, this is so simplistic as to be almost asinine, but yes, there are huge benefits to being very rich, right? When I had to take half of last year off work to care for April, like money would just 
not a problem. It just was not a worry on my mind at all. I had so many worries and money was so far down the list that like, you know, that was comforting. In the middle of everything else I was going through last year, having to think about, well, I need to sell this house because I can't afford to live here anymore. We're going to have to move into a two bedroom place or something like that would have just like compounded the stress to an unbelievable level. Yeah. I think I made this comment last week, but I edited it out. Money doesn't solve all your problems, but it solves some. Yeah, <laughs> and having yeah, less yeah. problems is still less problems. Less problems is less problems. And it just, it's a good reduction of stress and not having money seems really stressful. Just that like a position where I haven't really had to think about it for years, but not having money to do things that you sort of need to do is just sounds really, really stressful. And removing that stress from your life, I have a lot to be unhappy about in my life and I can spend a lot of a weekend crying, but I don't have to worry about that. Yeah. That, that, that's good. That's important. <sighs> All right. So this is a little bit in the middle of the show where we say thank you for listening and thanks to our Patreons. So we still have our five Patreons covering everything, which is a delight. They're actually starting to get a few little perks, which uh, we discussed last time in the show, and we're going to have a coffee bed on this time. So thank you for supporting the show. If you're able, if you're willing, if you're interested in doing that, it, we really do appreciate all our patrons. And I will remind the patrons that um, one of the perks is certainly being able to suggest both coffee bets and topics. And some of our patrons have done that, and some of our patrons have not yet. So if you're a patron and there's something that you'd like Brian and I to talk about specifically, then please drop us a line. Let us know. You can email us. You can Facebook us. However you want to contact us, we'll be listening. And if your topic is at least moderately okayishly good, we'll discuss it. If it's terrible, we'll say, I didn't ever get your email. <laughs> I mean, there's that part of it. It doesn't have to be a big topic either. Like it can be a book. I've shown that I'm willing to push through a book in a week and have a discussion on that. We're also happy for just like little opening topics, you know, anything like that. Sure. So yeah, yeah. If you just want a five minute get Brian and Chris's thoughts on this, we can't pat a whole segment on it but we can talk about it for a little bit more than happy to do that as well nice one so yeah thank you very much patrons we much appreciate it all right so this week going to be talking about a article from matt iglesias chris has mentioned matt a couple of times on the podcast previously he was founder at vox i believe that sounds right to me in the last year, he left Vox because it was too oppressive, even though he was one of the founders. That's the impression I get. I couldn't be blowing that well out of proportion. <laughs> I'm not sure. I actually think both. I think there was two guys founded Vox and one went to work for the New York Times and one has started a Substack. It's just very interesting because Vox is still a pretty big media empire. Yeah, it really is. So Matt is the guy who went to Substack. He's not the guy from the New York Times. I listened to a podcast with him and Tyler Cowan. Uh, yes few months ago and i know he originally studied philosophy he founded vox he liked the arctic monkeys but doesn't really rate them that much anymore <laughs> uh, and that's about all i really remember about him he was a bit left-wing that's kind of he's quite left-wing he's quite partisan in a way that i find uncomfortable probably all the people i read are somewhat partisan but they hide it better <laughs> <laughs> all right so his blog on substack is called slow boring do you have any background for that chris yeah yeah so i think it's based on some quote that politics should be the slow boring of the wood it's not meant to be boring as in uninteresting it's meant to be like a drill slowly boring away at the problems of society got it so it's some quote from a philosopher from i want to say the 1800s but yeah politics should be the slow boring of problems that are afflicting society something like that so that's what he's trying to do is not trying to catch the news cycle and leap on every controversy he's trying to guide politics and particularly democrat u.s politics as in the left-wing party of the united states towards solving america's problems in a slow consistent sort of manner I think he's got a picture of a drill as like the banner of his blog when you actually go to Substack. Yeah, got it. Makes sense. I read the first couple of his Substacks and they were mildly interesting, but they were very focused on US state-based politics. And I'm like, yeah. Sure, he get, he's got quite a lot of interest in the actual mechanics of how the American democracy works, how the electoral college works, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot worth skipping in Matt Iglesias. I do not read him across the board, but he's a witty and insightful author. He's got some good stuff. 
He's got some interesting things similar to you. I just have numerous aggregators of information, basically, um, whether it be reading Tyler Cowan's blog, which often acts as an edited aggregator for me to go, no, these are links that are interesting that I should check out or whether yeah, it's Yeah, I wonder whether I've gone too far the other way because I feel like anytime I read like a really good Substack, a couple of days later, I'll notice that Tyler's linked to it. And I'm like, maybe I don't need to read all the boring Substacks. I can just rely on Tyler to filter for me. Oh, I feel like when I see a link on Marginal Revolution that I've already read that I'm winning. I'm like, yes, okay. I beat you. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel like I'm getting more and more of those the more Substacks I read, but it sure takes a lot of time out of my day. <laughs> I can believe that. Um, so to get on to the actual topic, this article from Matt Iglesias is called Meritocracy is Bad. So in the corners of the internet that we read, the concept of meritocracy and, you know, whether it's good or bad or... No, generally, it's just it's just whether it's bad, <laughs> honestly, yeah. has been coming up and circling around. Even on the Jolly Swagman podcast recently, he was talking to Sir Paul Collier, talking around development economics and how the original framing of meritocracy was done by some labor economist back several decades ago and it was kind of done in a disparaging way yeah it was satirical or disparaging even the invention of the word meritocracy yeah exactly so it was like oh yeah all these people will be at the top based on their merit and blah 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 blah, and it'll still be really unfair yeah well let's cover the article and cover what a meritocracy is before we get too deep into that because totally I, I still feel like i'm confused i've tried to do a lot of reading this week on meritocracies <laughs> and objections etc and i'm still not entirely sure of my own thoughts the reason i bring up that kind of background and why that we've been seeing it pop up around our corners of the internet would be that matt actually has written this kind of in response to those as well so a lot of the arguments he's seen against meritocracy being bad is mostly that meritocracy is just done badly so the people who are at the top of our current systems, which we like to argue are meritocracies, are actually kind of dumb or they're not really that meritorious, I suppose. Yep. And going through the article, he kind of just lays out, well, you know what? Most of them are actually pretty smart. Like you can get some really smart people, but it turns out that smart people don't always do the nice thing. Yes. Yeah, that would be the thrust of the argument. Yeah. The big message is like, okay, well, meritocracy might be better than aristocracy, but you're still going to get people exploiting the system. Yes. I just want to give a quote from Wikipedia on what meritocracy is, because I think this helped me a little bit. So meritocracy is a political philosophy which holds that certain things, such as economic goods or power, should be vested in individuals on the basis of talent, effort and achievement. Advancements in such a system is based on performance as measured through examination or demonstrated achievement. So that's meritocracy. Power and economic goods go to the talented based on either examination or on actual achievement. Yep. Good framing for that. I think what it reminds me a lot of is going back to the discussions on Simon Sinek's book and Milton Friedman and that kind of thing where we provide further awards to CEOs, etc., based on their achievements in leading their companies, right? And the economic performance of their companies or how we measure the economic performance based on shareholder value. Um, yep. And a lot of times what you can see as meritorious leadership is, I feel sometimes it's appropriately, sometimes it's inappropriately, uh, disparaged <laughs> as, well, that's not really leadership. That's just being really devious and getting rewards for yourself. Financial trickery or, yeah. Yeah, it's just financial engineering, really. You're not actually adding value. There was a comment from Matt Levine in his newsletter this week about public company management. And it's like, there are two broad schools of thought about public company management. One is like you build good products, spend all your time thinking about how to delight your customers and enduring shareholder value will follow naturally. The other is like 
Your job is just to maximize shareholder value. So you should spend all your time thinking about that rather than focusing on things like products and customer service, which make you feel good, but they distract you from your real mission. And what that means is when you get to a company that has already found a market product fit, established companies generally tend to be led by CEOs that are more focused on that financial engineering-y stuff and quote-unquote adding yeah, value. Yeah, I quite like the quote that, you know, the operations of the company can pretty much run on autopilot. If you're just making pots and pans, it's a pretty established process. We've been doing that for 100 years. So the process of making pots and pans just runs on autopilot. So the C-suite's job is really just to do this financial engineering to make the share price look more valuable. So then you get people at the top who are doing this financial engineering stuff, which the actual value added to society is questionable. Yeah, But you I'm get like seeing. them reaping the rewards of that through this meritocracy because they're getting to the top of the hierarchy in the corporate structures and yep. getting paid millions to do it. Economic and political rewards, as it were. I guess that's one view of it. And I can see the argument that Matt makes there is you can definitely get to the top by being really smart and being driven and putting in the hard work. And I tend to believe that is mostly the case. I mean, I, I look at some of the leaders around and sure, they might seem less intelligent than other people I know, but I know that they have been willing to go through things that others I know wouldn't, right? So there yep. is definitely, I, I would say there's elements of luck and hard work and intelligence as well. Combination of luck, hard work, intelligence. But I don't know that luck is sufficient to get you to the top of the rewards. So I would say that mostly what we have is a meritocracy in terms of rewarding intelligence and hard work. Yeah, I agree. The trope of the pointy-haired boss from Dilbert has not been my experience at any point through my career, really. There is very few managers I can point to who like, oh, they're just an idiot and all their underlings are just covering for their mistakes. It almost never happens. I usually have pretty high respect for most people in management positions in the companies that I've worked for. Yeah. On that level, I would agree with Matt Iglesias that people who are at the top of this quote-unquote meritocracy that we're living in are there. They're in the ballpark of getting their rewards based on that system. It's not just pure luck that they've rolled the dice and ended up there. Yeah, talent seems necessary, but perhaps not sufficient. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you're going to end up with a pool of the top 2 or 3%, but you're not going to be locked into getting the top 0.01%. You're not going to get a perfect fit. You know, the example that illustrated this quite well to me was apparently the highest earning long distance runner in the world is the one who happens to be American. Like yeah. most of the good distance runners tend to be from African descent because most of the good runners full stop tend to be from African descent. But it turns out the one who's white and American can sell a lot more sneakers so he can earn a lot more in sponsorship money. So on the chosen metric of of be good at distance running, it turns out that's not enough. You need to be lucky enough to be born in the right country as well if you really want to earn good money doing that. And if you want to be the best at running the longest possible distance, it uh, turns out that women are better at that than men, surprisingly. <laughs> which which leads to all sorts of fun things. Like I loved it that there was one race where there was an open category winner and a women's category winner. And so when a woman beat out all the men, she won both of them. They're like, <laughs> wait, doesn't he deserve to get first for being the first male? And it's like, there's actually no category for first male. So she wins both, gets all the prize money. Oh, well, that's one way to address gender inequality, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, I just found that funny. <laughs> it's amusing. So I've kind of laid out my arguments for, yeah, I agree that Matt is right. Meritocracy is largely what we have in place. He sort of argues against it saying, yep, well, you can get to the top and not be ethical and do a lot of bad things. And oftentimes you are incentivized to do that. I can see the argument there. I just don't buy it that you're going to make the world better by addressing it. Oh, I, I completely, yeah. His argument, as I read it, is that 
We don't want to just put smart people in positions of economic and political power because it's a genuinely bad idea because some of them will be devious and rip off people. I can make point of it's about unaccountable power lately, but his solution seems to be that we just need to put kind-hearted people into positions of power and then they won't do such mean things. And he even has a quote at the end which drives me insane, which is like one of the anecdotes that he uses. It does seem that when you put hedge funds in charge of nursing homes, the patient mortality there shoots up because it turns out a cheap way to run a nursing home is to just give the elderly a huge amount of drugs and then you don't need as many staff to take care of them because they're all drugged out of their mind and then you can run a nursing home more cheaply at the expense of the lives of the people who you are supposed to be caring for. So that is obviously horrendous and he makes this quote that we should be creating an atmosphere in which people would be ashamed to tell their parents that their well-paid finance job involves identifying ways to make patient care worse. I'm like I'm pretty sure we live in that world right now Matt. I don't think anyone's going home at Thanksgiving and bragging to their parents oh man you should see all the elderly that I killed today but look at the size of my bonus. No one's proud of that. I think that this is one of these abstract things that when you're a hedge fund owner talking to a manager, talking to a sub-manager, talking to a district manager, you know, that these things get abstracted away and you can just look at the numbers of a whole lot of different places and identify, hey, this one, it seems to be, based on the metrics that I am currently measuring, running at a more profitable rate than this one over here. So we're going to get the management team from this patient care facility to teach their methods to this one over in a different state sort of thing. And that, that way we're going to be bringing about best practices or benchmarking or whatever, you know, corporate buzzwords that you want to do to try to drive shareholder value or drive hedge fund value or whatever kind of value they're trying to do. They're just optimizing for the wrong metrics. I don't think anyone's proud of killing the elderly to make a profit. I think that would be the absolute vanishingly tiny minority. I think it is the lack of visibility for the metrics you're focusing on. And it does seem that it's a 10% increase in fatality. So that's bad. And I don't want to say that that's not bad, but it's an easy thing to get lost in noise, I'd say. It's sort of telling that it required a statistically rigorous published academic article to detect that 10% thing. I'm not sure that a typical financial analyst is going to notice that. These data can be pretty noisy and it can be hard to pick up on things like that. Yeah, Getting benchmarking data is really hard from a corporate perspective, no matter what you're doing. And I would agree with Chris there, like having been involved in lots of budgeting discussions, a lot of the times it's just like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to set a stretch target for people to make some cost savings. And then it'll flow out that a whole bunch of people don't meet those cost saving targets, but a couple do. And then you go, all right, well, you guys who didn't make it, just learn from those guys who did over there. You don't actually see what the differences were, or maybe at best you do. And you go, oh yeah, well, whatever, we'll increase our drugs budget. And that means that we might get some headcount savings in the end, but we don't actually know what the impacts on quality of service are. All we see is the things that we have always measured, which is dollars in and people hired. Yeah. And then the other thing that really just irritated me about this article is it just feels like it's shifting the goalposts of what merit is. It's like, oh, we don't want to give it to the good-brained people, all the economic and political power. We want to give it to the good-hearted people, and we should take the best-hearted, most kind. And doesn't that meritocracy just by a different definition? He even says at the top, it's like, well, by any reasonable definition of meritocracy, it doesn't work. I'm like, surely the people who get the best results in nursing care homes could be considered to be those with the most merit at managing nursing care homes, and we should give the job to those people. Yeah. Agree. Actually measuring virtuosity, I suppose, is hard. <laughs> and it's all gameable at the end of the day as well, right? If you put the most kind-hearted people, guess what? Some of those are going to be psychopaths because psychopaths are really good at imitating being kind-hearted. They know how emotional intelligence works and oftentimes they can manipulate you into believing that they're really kind-hearted, even when you try to train them not I to be. I wonder if you've done that to me and then I realise that I don't think you're kind-hearted, so that's obviously not possible. <laughs> exactly. I'm not a good enough psychopath. <laughs> Chris, that's the thing. That's what's really holding me back. Um, yeah, so 
Or alternatively, you might get the people who are kind-hearted. But guess what? Those people who are kind-hearted are often pretty easy to manipulate as well. So the deputies to them could make sure that they get their own, you know, benefits and squeeze the ethics from within the system to get their own rewards, be it power or monetary rewards. Basically, principal agent problems. Yeah, I don't know. And this is one of these times where I also feel like Matt Iglesias was too ideological for my mind because he also throws in that he would prefer a dumb Democrat in power than a smart Republican because those Republicans are so such ideologues and they'll do Republican things even if they're really smart and executing good policy they just subscribe to the wrong ideology. So I want someone who subscribes to my ideology even if they do stupid things. That I guess he thinks that stupid Democratic things work out better than smart Republican things, but I like I super don't agree with that. Yeah, that was an interesting one for sure. What else was I thinking on this? So I was trying to think of ways to actually take this and turn it into action because at the end of the day, this article was kind of a rambling mess. Like there's an interesting thesis here, but the article itself was, yeah, it took Chris four times reading it to kind of get the point. Eh, I just wanted to make sure I was actually prepared for a podcast once in my life. Maybe <laughs> based on my merit, this podcast will grow. Fair enough. And what I thought of was a principle that Malcolm Gladwell covered in a couple of podcasts in the latest season of Revisionist History, which is random selection for leadership. So you have people volunteer to get in the pool, but you don't actually interview them or have elections or anything like that. You just randomly pull people from the pool. And that is more likely to select away from people who may be gaming the system, I suppose. Yeah, I do remember what you're talking about. That was done particularly in school councils, which is a sort of a nice low stakes environment to experiment with these things rather than huge countries. Yeah, so that was one interesting way I could see it. So you're not getting the huge psychopaths who I was alluding to earlier, who just know how to manipulate voters and how to say, I'm great. Or similarly, you might eliminate other biases as well, like, you know, racial and gender biases in corporate leadership if you're taking that approach to talent. All our leaders so far have been white men, and this guy sure is white and male, so he's probably a pretty good leader. <laughs> exactly. Um, people aren't explicitly thinking that, but implicitly they might be. Who knows? Yep. And I thought that might be one way of addressing this. As long as you get the top 10% of candidates, randomly selecting in there might be better than proactively yeah, chasing where, talent. Yeah, this maybe see that he has a point. So they did bring up the point that maybe America is also just weirdly more elitist than Australia. Like I went to one of the top two universities in Australia I believe, and it sort of vied for number one and number two between ANU and Uni of Melbourne. And I think Uni of Melbourne's back on top, which I'm sure if uh, a certain one of my friends is listening, he will be sure to remind me. But at the time I've graduated, I believe ANU was number one. But I don't think that carries anywhere even close to the cachet of being a Harvard grad, right? No. If I go up to a job interview and I'm like, well, I graduated from ANU, they'd be like, yeah, cool, you've got a degree. That's literally a requirement to interview for this job. We don't care beyond that. But, you know, even in my company, one of our investors is a Harvard graduate. And our CEO is like, that's very impressive. He's a Harvard grad. And I'm like, I mean, it's kind of impressive, but Harvard, Princeton, Yale, the Ivy League seem to carry so, so much more cachet in America than maybe Oxford and Cambridge would be similar in the UK, but any other university anywhere in the world, and particularly when I compare it to Australia, that elite education seems to matter much, much, much more in the States than it does here. I mostly agree with you. I guess what it gets me coming from a simple country boy is when I started working more closely with the folks at a few of the big four accounting firms in the capital cities, particularly Sydney, their focus on private school education was just so much bigger than I had ever, like, Wow. personally, I think private school education is a huge waste of money and whatever, but they seem to be so leaned into their networks on that front. It was really surprising to me. Really? Yeah. Okay. That surprises me too. I mean, I had a public school education, but a few of my 
friends through my parents, like their children uh, went to private schools. And I don't know, I feel like I got a good education. And it's been very weird that the education you got when you were 15 should impact your job market. I know, right? It's just oh, crazy. That's, that's a strange thing to fixate on. While you're talking about elites there as well, like this isn't something that Matt directly addresses in the article, but in the circles of the internet we're in, there seems to be a lot of like justification for, oh yeah, people got to the top and it's just natural that they got to the top because of the way things are. And you know what? There's probably even a genetics component to it. So it was just predetermined that they were going to get to the top. And yep. my problem with this, as much as I like hanging out in these communities, is it just embeds a sense of complacency. Sure. Like if you just think that things are the way they are and they should be the way they are because that's the way they are, you're going to miss out on so much talent. Like if you have yeah. a proper meritocracy, there is a lot of talent in the lower classes. I myself... I'm a pretty big son of a leader at my current company now. Yeah, son of a shearer came from a rural community. You would have yep. missed out on my talent if you just assumed that because my parents were itinerant workers. Yeah, yep. if he's a son of a shearer, all he's cut out for is to be a shearer. I yep. actually think that's a pretty reasonable critique of the, you know, call it the rationalist community in general, is that they're very good at rationalizing, which I don't <laughs> think that they would be pleased to hear. But the amount of times when, you know, you've looked at this thorny net knot of a problem and you're like, oh, well, the incentive structures, everyone's trying to do their best. So this is just the inevitable outcome of all of that. Well, dust my hands. That's on to the next interesting intellectual challenge sort of thing. That there is a lot of complacency, I think, in the rationalist community personally. Yeah, I think there's still gains to be unlocked from meritocracy by actually pursuing what talent is out there. I think talent is a normal distribution within families, within a bound. Like uh, it was in The Great Conversation that I read. It's pretty earlier. Schrodinger. Schrodinger, what is life? Covers off. Is the guy with the cat? Interestingly, yes. Um, really? Same guy as who, as who wrote uh, the thesis of Schrodinger's cat. Um, he wrote a book kind of outlining the fundamentals of science and, you know, positing what DNA might be and stuff like that. He gives this outline of genetic variance, and it's only when it's clearly outside the standard deviation that it is a new type. Like it's a new phenotype, basically. But yep. there's a lot of variance within a given genotype. Yeah. And yep. the same could be applied to you could be six foot ten and your dad's six foot. You're really tall, but it doesn't guarantee that your kid is going to be around six foot ten. Your kid could still be five foot ten. Sure. Like yep. there's a good amount of variance and the same kind of principles could apply to intelligence, right? You could have yeah. this elite who all have IQ of one hundred and twenty eight, but guess what? Their kids could still be IQ of ninety five. And you're missing well, out on now. the people who are IQ 140 who are in Africa because you've just narrowed your scope because you believe that genetics determines everything. And of course, I'm not going to account for variance there. Yeah. And there's a strong bent in the media that I read that genetics determines a lot uh, just to get our priors off our chest, I suppose, because there is some in some corners of the internet that IQ is made up and doesn't mean anything. And everyone is tabula rasa and everyone has the same thing. And I don't personally subscribe to that. I don't think intelligence is everything and I don't think genetics is everything, but I think it's probably fairly substantial. Yeah. And so, you know, this is another pushback that you could have to elites, particularly when you're saying amassing economic power, that if you're just giving economic power to the intelligent people and intelligent people are only intelligent because of their genetics, then we're really just randomly determining who gets all the economic power for no fair reason, I suppose. Well, um, like the argument behind that would be the intelligent people would presumably be the best at adding net value and creating positive sum games in the world, right? This is a Scott Alexander pushback to meritocracy is that sometimes meritocracy can be painted to like, we have discovered that you are intelligent and we have just blessed you with this high paying job as a reward for being so smart. And that's not really why people get high paying jobs. They get high paying for jobs because someone thinks they can make even more money out of employing this person. You don't get paid so much because people are like, 
that Brian Kemp, he's so virtuous and hardworking and he's just an upstanding moral guy and he deserves to be rewarded. It's like, no, probably we pay him X and we're going to save the company at least 2X, possibly more, on the basis of him organizing the structures around him in a really intelligent way. Based on my history, probably more. Probably more. (laughs) Anyway, yeah. (laughs) No, I, I agree. And it also comes back to our recent conversation on Leviathan. In Leviathan, he kind of points out the value of a person is what other people are willing to invest in them. And Scott had a recent argument for meritocracy that when you are having heart surgery, you want to pay more to get the best heart surgeon. You don't want to just pay everyone equally and get some rando. Yeah, and it's not because the best heart surgeon is morally more upstanding and deserves in a metaphysical sense greater economic rewards. It's just like, I have this economic means, I'm going to use this economic means to pay for the best heart surgeon because I want good heart surgery. Yeah, it ends up being the outcome of millions and millions of individual decisions. And, you know, if you've got a different view on society and you want to look at society as a whole rather than an individualistic pursuit, yeah, I can see and I believe in some arguments for redistribution. But I don't think that that should necessarily avert you away from putting systems in place that reward talent to optimize getting positive sum outcomes rather than if you just have a random distribution. I think there could be a lot more zero-sum games and I think there could be a lot of negative-sum games being played out there as well where people just grab for power, not specifying people individually, but I definitely have experienced it in my life where people are willing to hurt others to get ahead. And I don't see the same behaviors in all leaders. I see them in some, don't get me wrong. I think even Tyler Cowan gets to that in his book on big business, In right? big business. I love Letter to an American Antihero. Yeah. Interesting yep. book. Well, possibly worth a podcast on, honestly. It's not a very long book. I would read it again. So, I don't know. As much as I said, a lot of psychopaths can get to the top. Psychopaths are going to get to the top regardless. At least the incentive structures in our current system are sort of there to create positive value rather than just take it away from each other. I don't know that I 100% believe that. I think there's a, sh- a lot of I think there's work to, to be, be done. done yeah. But, you know, as I say, every time I have to defend capitalism, I really like that incredibly ruthless driven men like Jeff Bezos are giving me two-day delivery rather than leading the crusades through the Middle East, right? That seems like a better outcome. And, you know, he works his workers really hard and they may not like that, but we have a system where they can quit and get another job and there's other economic pressures and I'm not sure we're at a perfect system yet, but definitely him giving you a job in an Amazon warehouse, even if that's unpleasant, is much better than him holding you at sword point with his army and just taking your stuff. It's a better outcome for everyone. Yeah, I agree. It may be a much better outcome for Jeff Bezos, but it's a better outcome for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. So I had two points. It feels like almost every article against meritocracy because there's, who could possibly argue against meritocracy? Well, it's me. That's who, because it seems like such an obvious idea that the best and brightest should be put in charge, either A, to incentivize people hard work and effort, or B, because they're going to do a better job of organizing stuff for the rest of us schlubs. So the couple of pushbacks that I could get a bit more behind, I had to open up Chris's silly list of laws that he had to quote. And I could, unbelievably, this law was not in here. So Goodhart's law is where a measure becomes a target. And it does seem like, particularly in feudal China, the public service there was heavily based on test taking. So that was how the meritocracy worked in China, is that the better you did on these tests, the higher up in the government hierarchy you could do. And so I can definitely see an argument that when a measure of intelligence, so in theory, these tests should measure how intelligent and good you are, and instead they become 
become a target of like the better I do on this test, the more money, prestige, wealth, fame, whatever I get. Incentivizes maybe the wrong thing that you just learn by rote a bunch of poems from people 200 years ago because you know this poem is going to be on the test. And that's not necessarily the most useful thing. And so this can be brought up everywhere where a measure becomes a target. And I would say is exactly what is happening in these nursing homes. It's that the measure for a capitalist endeavor is how profitable it is. That is how, in theory, connected to how much value you are delivering to society. If you can take inputs of X and deliver value to your customers of Y, which is X times 1.5, then you can keep 0.5 for yourself. And that is value that has been delivered to society. That's the fundamental of how capitalism should work. But when what you're actually doing is killing a bunch of people early and making them really miserable, but they don't have the power to choose or change their mind of where they stay, you are robbing society. But the metric is profit. And you're like, as long as profit is going up, I am doing a good job. And so it's the target and societal good does not always flow from that target. So that is definitely where particularly psychopathic people, when you put them in charge, can go wrong. But I think it can happen to any of us. Again, I don't think that these hedge fund people are psychopaths and deliberately trying to kill the elderly in order to scrape out another buck. I think they're just maniacally focused on the target of making a profitable business and are figuring out ways to manipulate the numbers as such to do so. I would also say like when you're just looking at numbers, things can be abstracted to a level where you don't have as much empathy. Also true. Yeah, You can be acting psychopathically even if you individually are not psychopathic. Yeah, that is true. You can get a, a distance from things. And I think sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. I definitely think in this case it's bad. But, you know, when it comes to layoffs in companies where they're doing things inefficiently and they could be done much more efficiently by another company or outsourced or whatever, it's really heart-wrenching to be made redundant. And I'm sure you're feeling that <laughs> more than most, Brian. And I'm actually pretty sure you disagree with some of the reasons why you're being made redundant. But that that kind of creative destruction, which is, you know, a term bandied around in capitalism a lot. Sometimes you need cold-hearted people to do it. Otherwise, you just get stuck in these stagnant ways where everyone works in an inefficient local optimum. And because we don't want to deal with the pain of getting better, we never get better. Yep. Oh, I agree with that. I can see arguments on those sides. So not going to push back on you there. Yeah. Uh, and one point that I'd add on there, which Matt does nicely address in the article, is you could see an argument in the long term where if you're killing patients earlier, then people would stop going to your nursing homes. Yeah, I mean, the news this is getting made has probably made a few people look into the background of the nursing home that they're putting their aging parents or grandparents in and been like, well, this one's owned by private equity, so I probably don't want to put them in there. Yeah, but until that became public, like folks like Milton Friedman would have been like, well, you know what, in the long term, it's actually going to net out and it wouldn't have been worth their time, so why would they ever make these choices? And there's just a lot of friction in society. There's not perfect information. Sometimes it's unclear. It takes time to do discoveries, things like this. And I feel like as much as he has his political views, Matt actually treated Milton Friedman's ideas there pretty fairly compared yeah. to what I saw with Simon Sinek, especially. But it's yeah. like if you take the long run view, capitalistically, it doesn't make sense to actually make these kind of decisions which hurt your patients. But as you say, when you don't see that, when you don't see those outcomes because you've got different measures. And they can take a long time to come to light. They can take also, a wasn't long time. Friedman in the long run, we're all dead? No, that was, was that Keynes. Friend? That was Keynes. Damn. <laughs> oh, what a quote. Cool. I've got one more steel manning. I think that the moral of the story is I believe in meritocracy. I believe that we should put smart people in charge largely. And so the one pushback I've got is where the measure becomes a target. And the other pushback is that it's the problem of accountable power that I find difficult and complicated to address in all areas of life. And I think that one of the articles I read on a reason why meritocracies can fail is that if the meritocratic elite becomes so isolated from the needs and lives of those that they are governing, then they can lose their empathy for it. And so they 
can't even understand what problems, like let them eat cake would be the, yep. the quintessential example, but it doesn't have to be quite that bad. If you have a bunch of really bright people educated at Harvard living in their you know, glass fishbowls at the top of the Manhattan skyline, they just can't understand what life is like for a poor Shearer's son like Brian and their governance becomes more and more self-serving. It's like what we really need is more Broadway plays because that's what everyone really loves to do on a Saturday night. So we're going to have to invest a bunch of our money in, and it's really hard to make it as a Broadway actor. Have you ever seen a Broadway actor? Sometimes they have to live on like only the second floor. It's very tough for them. So we're going to delete, you know, direct a bunch of funding into Broadway plays because that's what society needs. And these downtrodden Broadway actors really need a hand up that you can become quite isolated. So I think distributed power, much as I have worries about vetoes as well and distributing power leaving to gridlock, I think that too concentrated power from people who are isolated from those that they are ruling is also creates a negative because that empathy, while it goes away when you're looking at numbers, it can completely go away if you've never even met the kind of person that you're governing. I think that that is another possible difficulty in a meritocracy and why you would want to distribute some of that power, say, through democracy, which I think most of us like, to, to everyone, even if they're idiots. Yeah, no, I like that thought. That's a good... Interesting view, I think. As much as I was down on travel last week, that was one good element of international travel was just being able to reinforce the understanding that by seeing people in other countries, they're just people. Like, guess what? Some of them are jerks. Some of them are nice. (laughs) They're still just people, just like the people in your home country. That's why you should treat things equally that way and have those kind of priorities on giving. Yeah, ideally a life in Africa would be worth as much as a life in Australia in your mental calculus of who to save. Yeah, And this is the effect of altruism, right? Because it's saving a life or extending a life in Africa is a lot cheaper than a saving or extending a life in the Western world. I've just realised I have one last thought on this, which I'll bring the accounting perspective to it. So Matt's kind of trying to figure out a way of like making sure that we've got ethical frameworks in place for these leaders, people who have this outsized economic power within the meritocracy. And it reminds me of a thing when I was becoming an accountant, we've got the uh, Accounting Professional Ethical Standards Board. So APES-B, which... Catchy. Yeah, totally. We love an acronym, which effectively lays out like a foundation of almost virtue ethics of if you are becoming an accountant, you should always have this foundation of decision making behind yourself to pursue these kind of ethics of confidentiality, of impartiality, blah, 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 blah. Yep. And that kind of training and also like they will kick you out of the professional accounting bodies if you are found to be in breach of those virtues. I'm a believer in virtue ethics just because I think that it is an easier system to default to and less gameable than utilitarian ethics. Yeah. Yeah. I think utilitarian ethics is ultimately correct, but I think virtue ethics is a much better way to live for 99% of your life. Yeah. So I feel like having that kind of training and accountability program in place, and maybe it is for CEOs and board members, that kind of thing, or executives, probably actually more executives rather than board members. Because you know what? Board members are there. They're sort of vetoing what the executive does. Um, And I'll just make this explicit for people who don't quite understand all these terms because I sure know that when I was a teenager, I didn't. Executive means you actually work in the business. You are actually making decisions on how operations run. If you are a board member, you oversee the executive and you sometimes there's executive board members, so they sit on the board, but you're kind of just saying, yes, we sign off on what the company is going to do and these decisions you are making as the executive. And yeah. And in my understanding, because maybe I don't understand this very well and you can explain it to me, but my understanding is that the board, ultimately their only power would be to sack the executive. Yeah. Right? Pretty so much. they and like they can use that power to say, hey, executive, I don't like your decision. I think you should go this way. And the executive sort of is free to ignore the board up until the point where they get fired. Yeah. So the board, they have special access to the executive. They can brief them on, you know, this is the strategy that we want you to pursue and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, the executive makes that decision. And basically they sign off executive pay. 
and they, they have hiring and firing power. Yeah, so it's just a lot of influence, right? If the board unanimously decides this should be our strategy, you as the CEO would be very brave not to follow that strategy because yes. they'll probably fire you. But <laughs> ultimately, that is the only power that the board has is that the CEO could go off on another strategy and then the board has to call their bluff, basically. Yeah. So where I'm going with this would be in chartered accountancy, if you have a clear breach from these ethical standards, these virtues that they want to outline, you can be kicked out of the organization. And perhaps having similar training on virtue leadership and accountability through board structures and through corporate constitutions could be a way to bring this in. I don't know. I'm just throwing yeah. it out there. Yeah, this is another one where I have not made my mind up because a lot of Managlacia's solutions seems to be we should all just be nicer people and we should have better social norms. And I don't know, I guess I'm just somewhat skeptical of that, that ultimately it's like it's going to be the yes. psychopath. You and I that, have that had really, the conversation many times that you don't make better people, you make better systems. You make better systems. And I'm not sure that the idea of just telling everyone now, let's really be nice to each other. And, uh, but no, but like actually this time, because I think everyone has the <laughs> ideal that we all be nice, or most of us have the idea that we all be nice to each other. But some people are just so power hungry that they can shove that to the side. But again, if the system is distributed power to a whole lot of people who do truly believe that we should have nice people for elections, then you can vote out the scumbags. And when the government gets completely corrupt, you vote them out and vote in the other guys. Even if you don't really like the other guys, you're like, well, at least they're not corrupt and we don't do corruption in this country. So I, I really, I oscillate back and forward on where I sit about how much we should be just strengthening social norms and hoping that that does enough work versus how much we should be strengthening the actual oversight systems to prevent people from getting intense. Or ideally, just incentivizing the psychopaths to be incredibly benevolent leaders who give us two-day delivery. Yeah, I do like that. So that was quite a meandering conversation Apologies if that was difficult for listeners, but... There's lots to unpack. I think Matt's was a good kicking off point. I'm glad I did some additional reading on meritocracy and objections to it. I, you know, I think that this is where I really fell down on Matt Iglesias's article, is that I think that having intelligent people from a different ideology to me is probably better than having stupid people who subscribe to my ideology. I think that I'm on that side. I'm pretty centrist, to be fair, so who knows where my politics lies. We've all seen place. your political... You've all seen my sick political compass. I'm mostly on the side of doing sick jobs. <laughs> it's coffee bedtime it's coffee bedtime we're going meta again we're going meta because i made that fancy google poll and i want to encourage people to use it basically so the same way <laughs> we tried to encourage people to give us reviews on itunes i'm going to encourage you to bet alongside us on these coffee bets including this one which is like super duper meta of how many people will use my fancy form to bet alongside us on the coffee bets so nice. that i put in the show notes last week i'll put it in the show notes this week and every week going forward a google form where you can fill in and you can leave your name if you want or you can vote anonymously that's fine depending on which side of the bet i take you can vote anonymously like a hundred times to guarantee i win because i'm probably going to try to take the high side of this bet <laughs> also fine with me but yeah i enjoy the coffee bets that i have with brian at the end of these things i think we've had some interesting ones i think they prompt a good discussion there's about 40 of you who download the episode every week interestingly i was looking at our stats it's sort of like there's a few of you working your way through the backlog i believe because we get about 40 downloads of a new episode each week but we get about 70 to 80 downloads in total each week so there's a whole lot of people going back and listening to the old episodes as we go through so if you're just catching up now hi thank you uh you probably can't help with this bet but it's lovely to have you on board anyway <laughs> yeah no great to have all the listeners we can whether you're synchronous or desynchronous listening so for context roughly 40 percent i think 30 to 40 percent of our current patreons have filled in the coffee bet form for us and we have roughly 40 downloads i don't know like the the, the fun thing about podcasts is they're nowhere near as tracked or monetized as like a youtube or a twitch stream uh, so there could be a bunch of people downloading it who never ever listen to us 
maybe that's all. <laughs> maybe it's only our patrons who listen to us. Maybe not even that. Uh, that if people are just downloading it and then it just goes into the void and gets immediately deleted. But all we can see is the downloaded, so we feel good about ourselves. So if 40% of our patrons, who are presumably the most engaged with our podcast, are listening, let's cut the bet at two weeks after the publication of this. How does that sound? Yeah, okay. Two weeks after the publication of this podcast, how many people do you think are going to have filled in my coffee spreadsheet? In total or like extra? So there's two in there at the moment. When I say 40% of our Patreons, I mean two people. Yep. This, oh, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So we're going percentage of total population. No, I just want a strict number. Because what if we grew out of control? What if by the time this one goes live, we're getting 100 downloads a week, Brian? I can't predict these things. So you're opening this up to the general population or it's still just Patreons? Yeah, up to the general population. So it actually went live on the episode coming out right now. We mentioned it in that podcast and I put it in the show notes. I will be heavily putting lots of arrows on it in the show notes. I'm going to work out how to do some of that pretty <laughs> ASCII art. So there's lots of arrows pointing at it okay. to make it as easy to click as possible. So I'll be doing my best to encourage people to fill in the spreadsheet because it's just, just fun. It's, I, it's, I'm curious to know what you all think. I enjoy this coffee bet segment i want to get a bit of the old audience engagement because it's fun yeah i get it uh, it's tricky right like i want to say my indifference point is 10 and people i think it's tricky because traditionally people used to always listen to podcasts while driving yeah that is not I the agree. case these days is it not right well it's like people just aren't driving that much these days uh yeah well that's true i have a few people who have said i kind of want to listen to your podcast chris but i never get around to it because i never drive anywhere anymore yeah so like the reason i'd say it would be pretty low like if we have let's say in the span of two weeks, maybe 60 people will listen to an episode. If yeah. you say half yeah. the backlog, I don't know what the decay would kind of look like. Yep. That's one sixth. A lot of people are lazy. And previously I would have said oh, most people just listen to podcasts while driving. So they're never going to actually action anything. They'd have to remember after they got out of the car to go click the link and by then it's deleted and it's too hard. Yep. No, I get it. That's tricky. So if we were in a pre-pandemic world, uh, I would have said maybe five. But since we're, more people would be listening at home, I'm going to double it to 10. 10. Actually, sadly, I think 10's a bit high. I don't think we can get 10. And that's including the two that we've already got? Yeah. I'd, I'd have to really go low. I don't, Not much low. I actually think 10's pretty fair, but I actually want to take the short side of that bet. I don't think we can get to 10. So ignore everything I said before about please fill this out 100 times. Just don't do that. <laughs> don't fill it out at all. Nine? Eight? Nine. Eight. I could go the high side of eight. I could do eight plus. I could do eight right. plus. Eight so, or greater. I'll take, I'll, since I started with the high side, I'll take the high side and you can take the low side, whatever. Okay, so I have seven or less, seven or fewer, five more. Mm, no, I want eight or fewer now. You want eight or fewer, okay. Yeah. Yep, okay. I want eight or fewer. I think For once, I'm okay. going to deviate from conservative Brian and ask everyone to make the change, make the change yeah. and participate. Come on, folks, you can do it. I believe in you. Eight or fewer, I win a coffee. And Diablo 2 news. I've been on the edge of my seat. I kept having interesting thoughts about meritocracy. And I'm like, I don't care about this. I just care about Diablo 2. That's <sighs> oh, a sad time in Diablo oh, news. No. Oh, okay. You'd think with all the happenings of remasters and whatever, it'd all be happening. But no, everyone's just still playing Project Diablo 2. And there's not too much exciting happening in speedruns, which makes me a little bit sad. What would I say? Probably the biggest news is Indrek's back. Indrek used to be number one, best speedrunner. I'd say probably he might be able to get safely back to number two. I still reckon Bender meets Fry has got the ups on him. But Indrek's yeah, right. back. He took a 
couple of months hiatus, I think he'd been working on a lot of dev tools for Diablo for speedrunning and having races and that kind of thing between people who want to participate the community that way, uh, working on Diablo.run. With a lot of plugin tools there, he's overhauled the website. It looks really cool now. If you go to basically anyone on Twitch who's streaming, you can look at all their characters' gear and their mercenaries' gear and everything inside their inventory live That's cool. while they're playing, which is super That's cool. That's very cool. It also tracks you know, the history of speedruns and all that kind of stuff in there. And it's got these cool tools that they're working on revamping for having races between people. So you could have a race to actually complete the game or you can have completely arbitrary races like just getting the most experience over time or getting the most gold or having a mix of those two and just getting different points from those kind of things. So it's a completely different way of playing the game and having competition between people without having it be specifically aligned to one objective outcome, like getting to level 99 on the ladder first or beating people up in player versus player. It can kind of be very self-contained, which is cool. And is this in the fancy new Diablo or is this an original Diablo? This is original Diablo, but presumably given the previous uh, comment I made about Diablo 2 Remastered should be able to be modified and kind of mods should work on it. It It should be able to be updated to work with that as well which is cool very cool and have any has one record form do they do records in what's the new one called the fan-made one uh project diablo 2 project diablo 2 has has a single record form one record has to be formed so on diablo.run not a single record has fallen let me look up diablo 2 on speedrun.com might be over maybe diablo 2 is over we're gonna have to find a new segment for the podcast of destruction Category mm. extension. 21 years after it came out. They've got PD2 here. There is not a single record. Oh, hang on. There's Necromancer records submitted. There's a Barbarian mm. record submitted. And there's Amazon. So there's no Sorceress run submitted for Project Diablo 2. My God. It could be you, Brian. It could be you. It could be you.